You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. La- 24 minutes to 3 o'clock and we are talking the naked scientists give us a call 011-830-702 and you can send through your whatsapps 072-702-1702 happy monday chris oh hello happy monday to you too did you have a fantastic weekend yeah i did it was nice that the, the weather is finally improving here in the uk so although it's still freezing cold at night it's actually sunny during the day so i'm making some vitamin d Getting a little bit tanned, you know, getting out and about some fresh air has been nice. Fantastic. So let's go to the Lions. We've got Abdullah in Mokopane. Hi, Abdullah. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good and you? I am great. Is it your first time on the radio? Second time. Second time. You are a professional. Look at that, hey? Yes. So what question do you have for Dr. Christmas? How does a magnet work? How does a magnet work? Okay, Doctor. Hi, Abdullah. The answer to this one is that inside a magnet are particles of iron. And iron is a magnetic material. And around the iron are particles called electrons, which are negatively charged particles. And they have a special property called their spin. And we can make it simple by thinking of something spinning around in a circle. Now, if all of the particles have the same spin direction then they all line up and this makes the object magnetic so you can make a magnet magnetic by either applying an electric current to it uh, around it and this makes a magnet or you can magnetize a piece of iron by stroking it with a magnet and what both do is have the effect of lining up all those spins so if you can imagine an arrow and all the arrows point in the same direction Once you've got that, then you have a magnetic field around the object. Normally, when when the spins are all in a random orientation, all the little mini magnetic fields cancel each other out, so you don't get a magnetic field. But if you line them all up, all of them pointing in the same direction, you create a magnetic field. And that's how an object becomes magnetized. But it's got to be what we call ferromagnetic. It's got to be a material susceptible to being magnetized for it to be a magnet. All right. Did you get that, Abdullah? Yes. Fantastic. You must Thank have a great you. day. Thank you. Bye, Abdullah. All right, we've got Prince in Mayton. Hi, Prince. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. Yes, go ahead, Prince. Okay, thank you, Lebo. Uh, Dr. Chris, I've got a question. Um, I'm planning to, we are planning to have a, a child with my partner, but uh, we've been talking about a lot of things, and we are very scared because we're thinking of... Um, maybe giving birth to someone who's disabled, someone who's blind, who's deaf, who's crippled. We would like to know what causes that, and is there a way for you to find out before you make a child if you are going to have such a child? I don't know if I'm clear. So almost like the pre-screening, Prince. Mm. Sorry, ma'am? The pre-screening. Yes, yes. Okay. Doctor? There's a range of reasons why babies might not be normal. But the chances of this happening is very rare. And usually the commonest causes of having babies that have a problem is because something's gone wrong when the baby's developing inside mum. And this can be because of infection. It can sometimes be because of trauma to the mum. It can also be because of something that mum does with her diet. For instance, if the mum drinks alcohol during pregnancy, this can cause harm. 
there are some drugs which, if mum's exposed to them, can cause harm. Sometimes this happens not because the mum's taking the drugs with the intention of harming the baby. It just happens she doesn't know she's pregnant and she takes a, a drug for a certain condition and it has a knock-on effect. Under other circumstances, genetic problems can cause an issue, especially if you've got what's called a consanguineous relationship. If you're related to the person who uh, you're having a child with, you're mixing up genes which already have a lot in common with each other and this increases the likelihood of disclosing a problem. So you should avoid having consanguineous relationships. You should avoid marrying your cousins and, and anyone closer than that if you can. Uh, that aside, when it comes to actually making the diagnosis, if there is a, a family history of a certain condition, then that can end up in the child. And so if a family knows that you have a particular condition that's been detected in other first degree relatives, then it may be worth doing a, a range of things. Depending upon what the condition is, you can undergo testing yourself before you get pregnant or seek to father a child to see if you even carry the condition or the trait, assuming the genetic cause is known. You can also do screening while the baby is growing and developing, and that's normal, antenatal care. We would screen to date a baby, in other words, when we think it was first conceived, so we could predict when it's due to be developing and at what rate and when it's going to be born. And uh, periodically through pregnancy, you can also have date um, screening done to, to look for abnormalities. All these things give enormous reassurance. There are also tests that can be done called amniocentesis or coronic villus sample tests. Now, these involve putting a needle either into the fluid around the baby or into the placenta that connects the baby to mum to get samples of cells from the baby. Occasionally also you can do blood tests on the mum to get samples of, of fetal cells or fetal DNA to do quanti quantification. Um, but this would only be done if there was a high risk of there being a problem. So the first thing people do is is obviously uh, look at the risk, the prospect that there's there's going to be a problem and then they, they take accordingly steps to make those diagnoses if they need to. But the likelihood of this happening in a healthy couple who are young is extremely low. Just look at the fact there are 8 billion people on earth now and the vast majority of them don't have a big problem. And most people have a happy, healthy pregnancy and a happy, healthy baby at the end of it. Thank you so much for that, Prince. Are you answered there? And I think maybe um, um, outside of the how is maybe discussing with your partner if you do find that the screening brings something up, what does that mean for your family? Uh, thank you so much, Leroy. Yes, I think I'm, I've, I've been helped because we don't have any history of such. It was just a worry because we usually see it on TV, so we thought yes. maybe it might happen to us. But I think Dr. Chris has made it clear. I'm so happy. Thank you so much. Yes, and talk talk to the doctor. Ask a million questions once you decide that you are ready to have a little one. Thank you so much. All right. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much, uh, Prince in Merton, for your call. 11 Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Doctor, I found something very, very interesting. And it was speaking about whales that commit suicide. Is that true? And how do they do it and why do they do it? I've not come across whales that specifically intentionally commit suicide because that, that means a very specific thing. A person committing suicide is actually taking active steps mm. to end their own life. We don't know 
that an animal goes through the same thought processes that we do, deciding that their life is worthless, that they're better off dead, and then taking steps to end it. What you might be referring to, though, is a phenomenon where whales beach themselves. We don't know why they do this mm. and why mass strandings occur, but what tends to happen when it does happen is that whales will suddenly crop up in a whole you know, raft of them on a beach, stuck, and people have to go and dislodge them and get them off. People suspect it might be that one sick whale leads the others astray because where one goes, the others may follow or they try and help, and that leads them all onto the rocks. But I don't know whether or not this is actually active suicidal ideation mm. on the part of the whale or whether it's just an unwell animal that makes a mistake in its guidance and navigation and then ends up on the beach, and others follow it because they hear its cause for distress and come along to see if they can help, and they get stranded too. Mm, so, in essence, I mean, we do know there are some animals that get depressed. We see, you know, with their behavior, um, some of them that maybe um, have been brought into the household and are being neglected. But can it reach a level where one could say that an animal, and I don't know which animal it might be, maybe like a marmosette monkey, um, would take steps to do something because it no longer wants to live anymore? I don't think it's been documented, but it's really hard to do these sorts of studies because you can't ask an animal, how are you feeling? Mm. What we can do is to watch its behavior. And you're, you're right that we can definitely document behavioral changes in animals that do mirror some of the changes that depressed people show. And you can ask a person how you're feeling. They say, I feel depressed mm. or anxious or both. You can see some of the same physiology and some of the same behavioral changes in animals that appear to be manifesting these sorts of feelings. Does that mean that the animal has the insight into the fact that it's going to live mm. for a while and then die? Do animals understand that there is a finite lifespan and they eventually die and that they can bring that forward if they want to? I, I don't think animals have that kind of insight. I mean, my yes. dog doesn't even recognize his own picture. So, um, <laughs> therefore, does, does he re recognize his own that. mortality? Yes. I, I don't think he probably does. Mm. But I think animals certainly have moods and emotions and they certainly suffer emotional trauma and you only have to have a pet that's un unhappy or a pet that's happy to see the difference. Mm. And, you know, when they're unwell, they, you know, if they've got a bug or something, they look very down in the dumps and they stop taking care of themselves. And they look like a disheveled person who's depressed and needs a bit of love. When they get themselves back together and they're feeling happy again, they've you know, a big wide tail wag and a glossy coat and they're back to normal. So it's certainly they have emotions and feelings, whether or not they can translate those into a concept of if I do this and end my life, this will go away. Mm. I, I don't think they have that level of mentation, to be honest. I got you. Um, there's one here that says, uh, my partner and I, uh, I just want to check that I'm reading. Oh, my partner and I are planning to have a family, but we want our babies to be born on the same day because the two of us, our birthdays are on the same day, which is May Ooh. the 8th. Can you please <laughs> ask the doctor, how can we do it? We're still planning. Thank you. And, and you, there are people who, who do end up choosing the dates because they just schedule a C-section. And they yeah, prefer, right. but I, I'm assuming yeah. they mean when it comes to conceiving. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, don't take cesarean section lightly. This is an, an important medical procedure which saves lives, both of babies and mums, 
and it's important to do this when life would otherwise be in jeopardy but this does not mean it's something that should be taken lightly or, mm. or done trivially this is major abdominal surgery which can have long-term consequences for the baby in a range of ways as well as for the mum so it is not something that we should do out of convenience it's only something we should do as an important medical intervention where it's absolutely necessary we're, we're born the way we are for a good reason it almost certainly does have health benefits in terms of um syncing up birthdays intriguing that the two of them have the same birthday what an amazing thing and um i mean nearly as amazing as someone like william shakespeare who managed to be born and died on the same day i mean yeah. i wouldn't say they're going down that path yet but you never know <laughs> um but <laughs> But in order that to make so the baby, dog. <laughs> in order to make the baby appear on the same time, though, I mean that's going to take some pretty clever timing. Uh, we know that babies take about forty weeks to cook, from the moment of conception to the moment they make their emergence into the world. But it's variable, and babies do come plus or minus a couple of weeks on either side of that forty weeks. And we are really bad at predicting exactly when. We are very good at saying when a baby was conceived based on doing a scan and measuring the baby and then working out how much cooking it's got to do before it's ready to come out the oven. But we're very bad at then saying, not, not because we're bad at medicine, but because this is unpredictable exactly when it's going to emerge after that 40 weeks. Is it going to be a 40-weeker? Is it going to be a bit early? Is it going to come slightly late? And it will always be in the middle of the night, of course, because babies never come during the daytime <laughs> and when it's convenient. They'll always turn up at one o'clock in the morning. Every baby I ever delivered kept me waiting all day until one o'clock in the morning. But um, it, it would be very, very difficult indeed to guarantee that you could A, get the conception date right to then anticipate correctly what the baby's length of gestation was going to be and then for the baby to make its appearance and do it speedily so that it didn't take all day all the next day and all the day after that for labor to complete so that the baby would come out so i'm afraid i think it's a tall order but why not it would be fun trying won't it I mean, there are just so many factors and variables. If they manage to get that right, I will seriously send them uh, a baby yeah. gift. They, because... they will be on the front page of every newspaper, <laughs> let's face it. Like mum and dad and baby all share the same birthday. Pretty yes, high odds. TLC will call to do a, a, a reality show on them. All right, we go to the lines. JJ in Randburg. Hi. Hello. Hi, go ahead, JJ. Yes, I've got two very surprising questions. Mm. One is, uh, I want to understand what exactly is internet data? Where does it originate from? And the second follow-up question is, uh, why isn't there another parallel internet provider? Why do we have to stick to just one internet provider like any other business venture that has got competition? It seems like we have to be locked to just one internet, the whole world. Why is that so? Mm, okay. Right. Okay. First of all, the data question. Well, we have to step back to, first of all, understand what is the internet. The word means, or is short for, interconnected network. And it's a, a way of saying there are lots of computers all connected to each other all over the world. And the way they're connected is that they all speak a common connection language. Every main computer on the internet has what's called an IP address. And that IP address is a bit like a postal code for the same as your house has a postcode. And if I write to your address, a letter will come from me to you. Every computer on the internet is given its own IP address. 
And in that way, data, when your computer requests it, is sent to it from wherever that data is on some computer somewhere else on that interconnected network. How do the computers know if they're in one place that the data's in another place, how to talk to each other? Well, the answer is that all over the internet, there are servers that know the postcodes of all the computers and they share that out all over the world. So when you say, I want this bit of information, it goes to one of those computers that says that piece of information comes from this machine and it then sends the information request to that machine. That machine is then introduced to you and said, this person over here wants this bit of data that you've got on your computer. And after that, the conversation just happens between your machine and that remote machine. But it's not just one simple computer whizzing around somewhere. Most big businesses have got a huge cloud of computers where many computers are all working together and behaving as though they're one computer, but they're just responding on behalf of all of them. So one of them will talk to you, but it's a huge collection or constellation of them. And this is how you achieve massive parallel computing and processing very, very fast. So when you type into a search engine like Google, for example, uh, I want to buy red roses on Valentine's Day or something, then what it's doing is actually presenting that query to this enormous constellation of computers and a small part of one of them will just deal with that query and send you back the result to your computer. But how it gets from them to you is the other major strength of the internet, which is an interconnected network. There is not just one route from that computer to you. There are multiple routes, like a spider web. You could start on one side and you could go around many, many different strands around the spider web to get from one side to the other. And so the information that's sent to you is sent in small chunks called packets, little pieces at a time, and it takes a range of different routes across the internet. And your computer is slowly, if you imagine a picture, say someone sends a picture, it would break the picture up into lots of little bits of the picture, each of which knows where it fits in like a jigsaw puzzle. And your computer at the other end is picking up each piece and then saying to the computer that sent it, thank you, I've got that bit, send the next bit. And it's all arriving like that until you've got the complete picture built up and your computer then knows, aha, I've got the whole thing. And then it says thank you to the computer that sent it. So it's not like someone owns the Internet. The protocol is shared across the world. The thing that's owned in some respects, though, is the who owns the naming system, what the, what the domain names are and who registers them. Though the computers that, that know that if I type in www.thenakedscientist.com, that that's my website, those machines are in America. And so that does mean that in some respects, America does have a degree of linchpin control over how the Internet works. But the Internet as an entity is across the entire world and no one owns the whole thing. It's all one great big shared interconnected network. But the person who gets the Internet to you, that is your Internet service provider. And they are literally connecting you from your place to what we call the Internet backbone. Those providers will be on a main point of presence for the internet and they will bring your connection to the internet for you and handle that connection that interface but they don't own the internet they are merely a conduit through which your connection to the internet flows i hope that explains it all right thank you so much jj in randberg for that um there's a question that comes from bafana he says hi doctor i'd like to know what causes split palate in babies i'm assuming that's your cleft uh, uh, palate and your cleft uh, lip and palate that uh, he's referring to. Yeah, that's right. So this range of disorders are, as you say, cleft lip, cleft palate. They're called craniofacial deformities. Uh, 
And the way that this happens is that when the face forms in embryonic development, the tissue which is forming your face migrates from round the back, round the side, and then unites at the front. So these two bulges of tissue grow round the side of your face into the midline and join together. And where they join is that bit, the philtrum, above your middle of your lips. That's, that's where they join together. And if something goes wrong with that uniting, meeting in the middle and linking together, rather like a handshake, then it leaves a deficiency in the tissue there or a cleft. And depending upon how far back that extends, you can either have just the lip that's affected or further back into the mouth, into the palate. The good news is that, of course, this can be repaired. It's a relatively easy surgery for us to do now. And uh, doctors are really, really good at this. And it can be life changing when people get this. Other, th other than that, people lead a normal life. So mm. if it can be picked up early and then dealt with quickly, it means the tissue will then grow and stretch. And it may require some revision as you get older, because sometimes when the, depending on how serious the correction is that's needed, it can affect the way in which the bones develop subsequently. So it may be that some revision is needed. But in some minor cases, it's just a question of joining together the tissue that didn't fuse properly during development, and then everything is fine. And then one more, Doctor, but I hope you can answer it in less than a minute. <laughs> I'm curious to see what you say. They say, please ask the doctor, what is the cause of the degradation, degradation of the male family parcel from anonymous? Of the male what? Family parcel. Does, it, does he mean the crown jewels? <laughs> to, to use another yes. Is he saying, why do things shrink? <laughs> I, I think, think I need that's a bit what... more time to think about this one. Okay, so we can postpone it to next week. Anonymous, make sure you listen out. I will remind Doctor about that question. And maybe he's not just referring to the size changing, but maybe also performance so we will have yeah, that conversation there's more than a minute to answer that. Yes. more than a minute to address that one <laughs> thank you so much dr chris smith the naked scientist will right, be back care. with you next monday bye bye